Hey, Real Talker, Alberta's got a real water problem on its hands. In fact, some communities, if not already out of water, are expected to run out by the new year. So what's causing all of this? And what's the solution? And why aren't more people talking about it? Geophysicist Jenny Yermi joins us. Then we head out to the West Bank, where human rights lawyer Allegra Pacheco talks to us about her work trying to stop this humanitarian crisis. This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. I want to welcome you to this episode of Real Talk in uh, just about 30 seconds. We're going to check in with geophysicist Jenny Yeremy on the heels of yesterday's exclusive, a half-hour sit-down with Alberta Premier Danielle Smith. A lot of you have a lot to say about what you heard about, well, a lot of issues. And today we're talking about the environment. We're going to talk about drought and water shortages. We're going to talk about coal exploration. We'll talk about oil and gas exploration and subsequent liabilities. We're going to talk about Alberta and Canada's broader energy transition, including the Fed's mandate to get Alberta's electricity grid to net zero by 2035. The Premier doubling down on an earlier statement yesterday. You remember this last week at a climate conference down in Calgary, Calgary called it pure fantasy thinking, the Fed's plan. And she didn't back down from that yesterday. If you missed the interview, you know where you can find it on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. Very curious to see what Jenny's going to have to say about that. In the second half of today's show, we go live to the Palestinian territories, and we've been looking forward uh, to speaking with this human rights attorney for quite some time, a graduate of Columbia Law. She's done a ton of work for the United Nations. Allegra Pacheco will join us in about a half hour from now. This episode of Real Talk doesn't happen without sponsors like Business Career College, and they're putting out the call to you right now to let you know if you're looking for a rewarding or high-paying career without a university degree, you can get started as an insurance professional with Business Career College. In Canada, insurance Insurance agents, a lot of them are starting. I mean, most of them start higher than 50000 a year. It's not unusual to see it closer to sixty, and that number can soon jump to about $90,000 annually. Remember, we're talking about without university degrees, right? All you need to do is take an approved course and pass your licensing exam. BCC offers industry-leading approved courses Approved courses in life insurance, property and casualty insurance. Plus, their expert instructors are passionate about helping you launch your new career. Right now, there's a great deal for real talkers. You're like, is he talking directly to me? Yeah, you bet I am. You can save 15% off any BCC insurance course right now with the code REALTALK. That's all one word, REALTALK. Get started today at businesscareercollege.com. Jenny Yermi is a geophysicist turned oil and gas cleanup and reclamation policy and regulation expert. She was an Alberta party candidate. She wanted to serve as an MLA. She's a social, environmental and economic crisis advocate. She describes herself as a bridge builder, bringing people and ideas together under the goal of helping Alberta and its people lead a sustainable transition with understanding, cooperation and Grace, what an intro as she makes her Real Talk debut. Jenny, it's so nice to see you. Thanks for making time for us today. 
Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. It's so important to have these conversations. Thank you for making space for us. Yeah, of course. Well, so you're you're kind of this uh, trifecta. You know, you've got you've got the the science background as a geophysicist. Uh, you're you're engaged politically. Uh, anybody who knows you or follows you on Twitter at Jenny Yermy knows that. And and then of course also um, you've got a real um, uh, what do I say advocacy angle to what you do you don't you, you don't just limit yourself to one box how did you come to be who you are what drives you yeah so thank you um being in the industry uh i haven't really had the opportunity to be um a traditional leader i would say first and foremost i'm not really a strong um geophysicist what i mean by that is i i don't like to stay focused in just geophysics. I'm, I like to, like you said, bridge, be a bridge builder, understand how geophysics relates to other areas. Um, and so in that, I've always been exploring in my career. So instead of moving up the ladder, I've moved sort of horizontally um, to understand the industry holistically. So um, last year, uh, early last year, I was at one of the major oil companies and um, I was trying, so I was in a role, as you say, I transitioned from a geophysicist into liability um, expert expertise around the money that was injected for the um, in, um, the $1.7 billion that came to Alberta, BC and Saskatchewan to clean up the oil and gas wells. And um, so I, I wanted to understand how to do this work best. And so I took a complex decision-making course. And one of the questions they asked was, to find your problem space. So I started with, okay, so this is an um, interdepartmental problem. No, this is a company-wide problem. No, it's an industry-wide problem. No, it includes the regulator. No, it includes the government. Holy smokes, this is an everyone problem. It includes stakeholders too. So I I basically, uh, and at the same time, I, I didn't feel welcome where I was. I was told that I wasn't aligned with the organization and, and therefore I, you know, left um and and then like you say ran in the election because to me i was acknowledging that this problem is bigger than just the oil and gas industry and trying to make change there so to your point i've discovered that this isn't just an energy transition that we're dealing with it is a environmental social and economic problem where do so, you yeah, think I, sorry to step on your toes jenny where do you think that you weren't aligned uh, with the big oil and gas company, you were, I don't know if you want to tell us who that was. I don't know if it matters. I'd be curious to hear. But but where did you find or where do you think they perceived that you weren't aligned with what they were doing? Um, well, I was brought into a meeting. I did a presentation at the Geo Convention. So I'm like you said, I'm a geophysicist. And, and my my learning that complex decision making course helped me appreciate that we're compartmentalizing the problem that we have. And so, you know, it's interesting. My husband's actually an environmental scientist. Mm. And we've talked for years about how what I do doesn't translate to what he would see. Like he's a firefighter now, but he knows enough about this. And so I presented at the Geo Convention, encouraging geoscientists to become more holistic in their thinking and start realizing the impact of the decisions we make. And the very next day, I was brought into a meeting room with four um, executives and told that I was... Um, not aligned. So again, I was always operating. And in that presentation, I said I was operating with in regards to upholding the Orphan Well Association and the responsibilities of industry to to pay their share and, and do their part in, in that effort. 
and that I was, you know, like I said, a problem solver trying to help the industry come together to solve this big problem. And instead, I was told I was combative and that I don't communicate, which I didn't think I had the capacity to do so. So that's the only information I was given. So if I'm not, if that's not aligned, I don't really want to contribute to that, which is why I left. Were you surprised that that oil and gas liabilities, orphan wells, that 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 sort of entire uh, what do you want to call it, like that spectrum of conversation, the the myriad of issues, uh, the inevitable moment of reckoning that will come at some point, wasn't more of an election issue? And for that matter, are you surprised that it's not more of an everyday topic of conversation in this province? Thank you. Yes, one hundred percent. We um, so to me, there's. There's been an, a, a benefit and I would say a risk in having the conversation focused around emissions alone. So I would say that is primarily a, um, a push from the oil and gas industry, which is we can step over the liability problem if we just focus on emissions and especially if we push off that discussion until 2050. So to me, this, as I said, we're this is a holistic problem. We need to think beyond just air. We need to think about water, land, life, and resources, and being able to um, to just talk about emissions is really distracting. It's compartmentalizing the problem, and it is. Um, I, I would say the biggest challenge we have is this is a this is a very difficult and challenging issue, and and unfortunately, the oil and gas industry understands it better than everyone. And, and since we're not able to, um, you know, like I said, people like me who actually want to solve the problem in Mandy Olesgaard, who I've heard in interviews as well, you know, we're, we're stuck with we're we're waiting. We're in this waiting game. I saw you in the chat yesterday. I appreciate you uh, checking in on that show uh, when I was speaking with the premier. Uh, what did you take away from that conversation? What was like one thing top of mind that you heard or or maybe that you didn't hear that really stuck with you? Well, you know, I find it interesting that we're talking about insurance um, reductions. You know, again, I look at what this government puts out on a daily basis, and it is 100% fossil fuel centered. And to me, this is this is a worldwide issue. I'll say, you know, it's not just this this province, this government, but it's the idea that our industry, our our government is focused. It's centered on fossil fuels, and so she, you know, we're talking about auto insurance premium reductions, which Number one, you can't measure. There was somebody in your chat who offered, you know, yeah, sure, I did a test and, and proved that I was a good driver. And yet my insurance went up because adjustments happened. And, and despite that, so you can't actually measure whether or not that actually is giving Albertans something in their pockets. Same thing with the with the fuel tax reduction, you know, not so instead we're not taking taxes. So we're not looking after our future by taking in those taxes. And and we can just we somebody can adjust the price of the at the at the gas tank and we don't know whether or not we've saved money or not so to me we're it's just band-aid solutions focused around fossil fuel longevity and not about around our needs that's not what i'm hearing you know especially in this water crisis where why aren't we talking about water yeah no we're really not so why don't we go there first um and i've got a few i want to talk to you about the electricity grid i want to talk to you about coal exploration in the rockies i know you could talk about all of it uh, but why don't we get to water right now? Because my understanding is that there are some projections in particular, but not limited to southern Alberta, that suggest that some communities could be literally running out of water. Like some of them, if I understand correctly, are trucking in water right now. Yeah, three three communities, according to. So I have to, you know, I have to give props to the NDP. They held a town hall last night 
It was a wonderful, engaging conversation. Um, the the message from from people on the call was precisely this: we water is is a limiting factor. We have to look at we, our world is finite, and um, we're operating as if we can keep growing and keep using resources, and that's just not true. And water is the is the um, limiting factor that we are seeing today. So yes, I heard on the call last night that the both the reservoirs associated with um, with water to uh, Lethbridge are dry. You know, uh, there was a gentleman on the call who said he's for two weeks been taking photos of the second reservoir. So I think it's the St. Mary, sorry if I have that name wrong, but the first reservoir was dry back in August, which is in the public. Um, can't find anything on the second one, but it's the Old Man Reservoir is also dry. So yeah, Lethbridge is facing potentially having no water um, in January. And in the face of that, our government isn't talking about it and is proceeding with two extremely high-risky detrimental projects in southern Alberta, being the coal mining and the logging program ahead of the highway. Jenny, I, uh, I'm one of those that is guilty of not knowing exactly what's going on on the eastern slopes right now. And it's just kind of hard, I think, for, for the average person to keep an eye on everything. But what I do know, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, or at least what I suspect and what I would say with some conviction, is that Albertans were led to believe by the previous conservative government after one of the most incredible grassroots campaigns I've ever seen, uh, lawn signs and everything else, people from all walks of life and all political stripes pushing back strongly on coal explora exploration and mining in the eastern slopes. I mean, I, the Core Blund was just one of many on our show talking about that, plus a lot of landowners and stakeholders, and uh, including people that had voted for and donated to and volunteered for that government. So they were pretty pissed off. And people were led to believe that the government had put a stop to that 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 was done, that the government had heard the people and had taken action. But my understanding is that that's not exactly the case and that there's still new leases being handed out and that there's still exploration happening. Can you get us up to speed? Yes, thank you. Um, so, yes, there's been a name change by the organization that had planning. So, you know, this name change thing is a red flag for anybody if you're paying attention. If the easiest way to pay attention to how things are occurring is a name change, either a sales process or or a name change. And in this case, so that it's a new company, Banga Exploration, that is applied. Sorry if I have that backwards, but um, they've applied for through the AER to do their testing and exploring of the coal mine. So according to Mark Dorn, who I'm sure is on the call today, um, and Nigel Banks from the Alberta um, Law Review in Calgary, has said that the AER doesn't have the jurisdiction to allow this um, application to come through. So to your point, through all the effort that was done through this Protect Our Waters, I have the sign behind me here if you can't see it, um, uh, effort, there were new laws written and the AER does not have the jurisdiction to approve this this application. Um, as Mark has said, and uh, Mark, correct me if I'm wrong in the chat, this is um, a matter of administrative law. This isn't um, uh, legislative law and they don't have the authority to do that based on the laws that were passed to put a moratorium on on coal mining in the eastern slopes. So just to be clear, if that if that project goes forward, um, that means at least 
20% of the water in southern Alberta is both contaminated and at risk. There'll be there'll be further um, evaporation and exposure. What do you what do you think the whole point is with that? If there's no economic value, is it? I mean, is this literally, you know, pres- I guess I'm asking for your gut instinct on this. Is this preserving a couple hundred jobs in an area that that's a, a conservative stronghold? Like, is it that simple? Well, you know, somebody asked this online and, uh, you know, because what is the bigger issue? And and it goes back to your point in this early conversation. We're still stepping over the $260 billion liability issue with the oil and gas industry. And so to me, this is a distraction from that. You know, let's fight. Let's have them fight. So, uh, you know, and now I'm, I'm speculating. But if we're all focused on the coal mining and the logging, then maybe we'll keep forgetting that there is this $260 billion elephant in the room that needs to be addressed. It's it, it's okay to speculate from an educated standpoint. That's kind of the point of shows like this to a certain yeah. degree. So so we'll accept your submission. Uh, what do you want the before? I don't want to like just move on from water uh, because I think that that's something that you know. I mean, a lot of people are talking about you know water's the new oil. I, I'm sure you could poke holes in the metaphor, but but I know that people are you know, aware that the value of fresh water and that water is a natural resource will become more and more and more significant over the years, the decades to come. Uh, we often ask guests like you to, and I'm not wrapping the interview right now, but, but to, to leave us with like one thing to think about or one takeaway on the waterfront, no pun intended. What do you want mm-hmm. people thinking about? So, like I said, we're, 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 addressing this social, environmental, and economic problem. And right now we have a moratorium on solar and wind, which is the only area which should be moving forward. Hmm. And what, but what that's done is it's highlighted what we need, which is a moratorium on all resource extraction in this, in this province. So that is coal, that is logging, and that is energy extraction. Um, the reason being is because Alberta is in a net deficit in terms of restoration, and and looking after people in this province and unless we reverse course we are moving in the wrong wrong direction so i guess the message i have for people is our government doesn't have this they 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 do not have the energy transition in the bag and we need to take responsibility we we meaning you know people have said to me we need a different government well we tried that we didn't we weren't capable of getting a different government in and we need to face that we can't wait four years for this problem to be solved, we have to get active and we have to get involved with people that are actually looking to find solutions. Uh, Galaxy Hunter in the live chat says this is the scariest conversation I've ever heard on Real Talk. Uh, Mark joined me in studio a couple months ago. He says if the AER, Alberta Energy Regulator, approves the latest Grassy Mountain application, um, he says the Alberta Court of Appeal will quash the decision. Uh, Alberta Girl just says, when will people understand that the AER is a Broadway show? Uh, this is resonating with a lot of people, obviously, Jenny. Let's let's talk about it. We, we asked the premier yesterday about her um, her interaction uh, with, with a, a solar entrepreneur at, at a uh, Pembina sponsored climate conference in Calgary last week where she referred to the Fed's roadmap to a net zero grid by 2035 as pure fantasy thinking. And she didn't walk it back yesterday. She takes that position. There's a correlation there to natural gas. She explained it for anybody that didn't hear. I'd recommend they go back and listen to it. But uh, do you believe that a net zero grid in Alberta is doable by 2035? Yes, 100%. And I think the easiest way to solve this is to make the 2035 um, net zero grid um, analysis that was done public. 
we we can't operate. This is a this is for everything. You know, emissions. We need the real emissions data to be public. We need the the work that we do, and that by the way we paid for as well. We paid for this economic analysis. Make it public. The more information that is held back from us, the more difficult it is for us to just come together and solve these problems. We've heard from, thankfully, um, Markham Hislop doing all of these interviews on the on the grid when this happened. That there there have been experts screaming that this is possible since 2015, and and the federal government has made concessions for natural gas as backup when we have the capacity to simply tie into BC and utilize hydro as storage. And now I'm not saying I, I, we can't have a one hit wonder. We need to have we need to be able to give ourselves options. So I still think we need storage and in, in, um, in batteries, but. We need to look to experts and we need to stop narratives. And the best way to do that for our government, please hear this too. We can see that this is a worldwide issue in terms of political influence from fossil fuel industry. And we have to help our leaders make these decisions. You know, I, I want to make sure we talk about the logging program at the, at the head of the highwood, um, if you don't mind. No, let's go there, Jenny. Yeah. So, um, just to give you a few things on it, sorry, I'm just finding my notes here. So first and foremost, um, it's 1,100 hectares and it's planned right at the head of the Highwood River. So the Highwood River serves all the communities, including High River, Okotoks, um, uh, Pincher Creek, down through Nanton, all the way into Southwest Saskatchewan. So there is scientific evidence that when you do a clear cut program, it causes soil erosion, and evaporation. So when we know that we have water shortages, like we are seeing in Lethbridge, to proceed with a logging program at the head of the highway is knowingly going into causing more potential loss to drinking water in communities. This program cannot proceed. And if there is a legal uh, ramification for it, great, pay it. You know, we, we got to, um, we, we have to recognize that this is a crisis and that we cannot proceed as business as usual. So the other thing is, is they built a bridge um, during uh, spawning time and they built the bridge within the water line of the of the river. So it is against federal regulation in terms of species at risk. And it was done without um, DFO approval, without the Department of Fisheries and Oceans approval. So there's a stop work order on it there right now. And we want to hold that. And so when I talk about moratorium, we're specifically, uh, and I can say I'm working on behalf of the um, Calgary Climate Hub and working with TASC and CPAWS um, for that matter. But but specifically, we have a letter from the Calgary Climate Hub asking for a moratorium on logging. And, and, and you know, I look at it as we have these potential regulations and, and laws that need to be completed in terms of land use. If those are in place, great. Then everything gets... Um, looked at from the lens of restoration, from the lens of we need to be restoring forests, not deforesting. We need to be restoring sites, not creating more of them. We need to be um, replenishing water stores and biodiversity, not further eroding them. So again, this is where I think we need to take action. If you're just uh, live tuning the audio right now in the Mixler live streaming audio app presented by California Closets, we're talking to geophysicist Jenny Yeremy. Jenny, are you officially with Calgary Climate Hub or no? 
No, no, I'm, okay, you're just... I'm uh, trying to work with every group I possibly can. So I see. Thankfully, yeah. this is a this is an area where the Calgary Climate Hub was was looking for support. And so, yes, it's just on a on this project specifically. Cool. Right I, I want to give them a shout out. And we also wanted to mention you, you you mentioned Markham Hislop in passing. And obviously, Markham's a great friend of this show and and does good work at Energy Media. That's energy with an I, uh, energy.media, thoughtful journalism about energy's future. It's been a while since we've spoken with Markham. Might have to get him back on the show. Jenny, before we run out of time with you, I just want to ask you, I know I know you you sent us some interesting thoughts ahead of time, um, which I appreciate and, uh, and and one of the things that you wrote kind of jumped off the page at me. And I want to wrap with this. You say that natural gas is not a bridge fuel for the transition. And I think for a lot of people, including me, that might come across as a bit of a surprise because we understand natural gas to be cleaner burning than other options. Alberta has obviously oodles of it. Um, a demand for natural gas, increased demand for natural gas is good for the economy. Um, there's ambitious LNG projects in BC. I think a lot of Canadians believe that there's a robust future for natural gas as a so-called bridge fuel. So why would you argue that it's not? Yeah, thank you. And and I have to, you know, to meet people where they're at, you know, being a geophysicist, somebody that's been in the industry for, for decade or two decades and more, um, I had a conversation with a friend in August and said, you know, it, it's not just an energy industry problem. It, it's all of our problem. And then I got home and watched a video, um, Big Oil versus the World. And it explains that back in 2011, there was a study, a two-year study that was completed through Cornell University that suggested the emissions losses, so the leakage from, uh, from natural gas, is more detrimental than burning coal. So coal, if you can imagine, it doesn't emit a lot of um, uh, methane or natural gas. It's 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 held in that resource. So when we burn it, yes, we create GHG emissions from it. But the problem with natural gas is it is an expansive um, uh, resource. So it wants to escape. And so they, this study discovered that three to five percent of emissions is what we're seeing, which makes sense just logically from somebody who who's in industry. You know, you have the wellhead, you have pipelines, you have a facility, and then you also have the delivery system. And in each of those cases, if you, you lose a little bit of methane, it amounts to that three to five percent, which isn't much. Now, just this year, there was a study, and I don't know, but it was um, offered through um, New York Times put out an article points to this study that suggests that 0.2% emissions losses from natural gas production is makes it equivalent to coal. So that means natural gas is actually 20 times worse than coal in terms of emissions. So when we when I when we talk about 2050 emissions and and CO2. That's not the whole problem. We have to back up the bus and talk about methane, which again is why the emissions data needs to be made public. So once you say that natural gas is bad, then you know that LNG is worse because LNG requires compression of natural gas, which is more energy and, and difficult. You, we don't have CCS because we can't contain all of that methane. And um, blue hydrogen, again, that requires more production which releases more methane. So mm. in all of those cases, which is, sorry, I'll stop. I can see you're looking away. And no, 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 uh, well, no, no. To so, be honest with you, I just feel like the world, the, like the, 
No, I'm just the magnitude of what you're talking about is just resonating with me. That's all. I mean, I feel like I've learned more in this half hour, um, but I'm also like, and I know that's not your goal. That's not what you're trying to do. Um, But it's just sometimes the reality of what we're talking about is a little bit crushing. Yeah, it is. And this is why, so I look at Alberta has a tremendous responsibility. We have 400,000 or more wells that are emitting. Uh, We need to shut this off for the world. And there is a simple path forward. Please hear. I know that we can, number one, we can do this. We need to stop pretending to focus on CCS and LNG and all these things. We simply need to close well sites and prioritize that based on high emissions, high pollution, and low production. We need uh, industry, not just provincial-wide planning through the AER. So to me, this is the time to get deposits from companies and set the clock and get the AER to do their job. Please hear also that there is a cost-effective way to do this, which is looking at it from an industry as a whole rather than from an individual company. Both the AER and the industry are not working to help each other with the way that this is done on a company basis rather than on an industry-wide basis. And the answers are all there through the sub-regional plans. Those are our North Star. Those are, you know, the laws of the land is what's going to help us move all of what we need to do through the same system so that we can all you know simplify what what we're what we're doing in this province and and get the solutions going jenny i'm so grateful for your time today uh let me just say obviously we're going to need to bring you back i envision a real talk roundtable with you and two other advocates well versed in industry with impeccable credentials uh, that can give us the straight goods the real talk on alberta and canada's environmental reality thank you for your advocacy and thanks for making time for us today Really appreciate this. Thank you so much, Ryan. You bet. You can find Jenny uh, on Twitter at Jenny Yeremy. Uh, We'll put that, uh, of course, well, basically just follow Real Talk on Twitter at Real Talk RJ. And uh, we share the handles of the guests that will be joining us each and every morning. She did mention Mark Doran. It's great to see Mark in the chat. Uh, Mark's recent appearance-ish, recent-ish on the show is back on August 16th. Uh, where he was talking to us about his work with Polluter Pay Federation and some of the issues that surfaced uh, during this conversation. So Mm -hmm. we recommend that you go back and check out that episode. We're going to be heading to the Palestinian territories uh, in uh, 90 seconds to check in with Allegra Pacheco. I'm expecting a very powerful conversation there, and that would not happen without the support of sponsors like Grand Dog Essentials, Quality Raw Food. You can find them online. If you're living in Alberta, they're at granddog.ca. They deliver right to your door in Edmonton, Calgary, Central Alberta. That's what they do for us, for our two pups, Moses and Monroe. They both have their own unique needs, their own unique health challenges, and a big part of that is addressed through their raw food from Grand Dog Essentials and from some of the supplements that we have them on. If you go to the website, granddog.ca, go to the Shop Now link and check out the Four Leaf Rover bundles. These are curated bundles to help your pet, your pup, even your cat, with things like allergy support, joint support, senior support, immunity support, you name it, they've got it at granddog.ca. The promo code REALTALK takes 10% off your first time order. Complete Care Restoration wants to remind you that, yeah, they definitely have built their business and they've built the trust that people have in that business on helping folks get back on their feet from fire and flood. You know, if you've been in that situation, how valuable it is to have a team that brings professionalism and empathy to the table. But they also have experts in repair services, construction, renovation, 
They employ a full staff of proprietary repair trades like framers, drywallers, painters, finishing carpenters. Let's say you got a leak in your shower and the entire ceiling in your kitchen explodes. Does it sound like I know what I'm talking about from firsthand experience? Complete Care Restoration can get you back on your feet at completecarerestoration.ca. And who was there at one of the 16 Friesen brothers across the province yesterday to knock 15% off their grocery order? Hey, they do that every November 1st, don't forget. But Seniors Discount Day goes through the week at their different locations. Friesen Brothers, for more than 65 years, has been family-owned. That's Alberta-owned, Alberta-grown, and they understand the value of family meals. If you go to their flyer link at Friesen.com and click on the Family Essentials flyers, you'll find easy family meal solutions. Those are simple and interesting recipes that can be made using products featured in the flyer, including hearty fall recipes like stews and pulled pork and chilies. The entire flyer available online at Friesen.com. Allegra Pacheco is a U.S. attorney, a graduate of Columbia Law School with honors in international law. She's currently based in the occupied Palestinian territories. Uh, She was a practicing human rights attorney for eight years in the Israeli Supreme and military courts, uh, representing Palestinians on cases regarding torture, detention, prisoners' rights, land confiscations, and house demolitions. Her human rights work has been uh, recognized by Amnesty International and Harvard University, where she was awarded a Bunting Peace Fellowship in 2001. Over the past 15 years, Ms. Pacheco has held various legal and protection positions in the U.N. Uh, She's also published legal articles on the occupation in The New York Times, NPR, The Boston Globe, in the foreword, prior to her work in Palestine, Ms. Pacheco practiced corporate law in New York City, and she's worked in the U.S. Congress. We're grateful for her availability today. Thank you for joining us on Real Talk. Where, where do we find you today? Uh, right now, I'm in uh, Bethlehem in the West Bank. Would you describe to us the reality there day to day right now, what you're seeing firsthand? Yes, well, uh, Bethlehem, like most Palestinian cities, uh, has been closed uh, by uh, the Israeli army. Most of the roads leading out are now blocked by earth mounds, uh, gates. Uh, In the big cities, uh, there's generally one road out with a large checkpoint. So that means long lines, very tense waiting situations. Uh, So movement and access has been uh, dramatically restricted since uh, the war started all over the West Bank. And it's not only for people to leave cities, but it's for villages and rural areas to come to the cities to access services like medical services, to go to their jobs, kids to go to school. About 200 schools are not functioning because of these closures currently. What drew you into this line of work? Your your, your CV is remarkable. Your involvement, uh, incredible. Where where did this, I mean, you, you do this, I would imagine, uh, with a great deal of conviction. Where did that come from for, for you as a young person? Um, well, I grew up in a household, and I, I would say, you know, in the time following the civil rights struggle in the U.S., and very inspired by that and very much inculcated with those values. Uh, I also come from a Jewish background and a quite intense Jewish education uh, where I think some of the principles in Judaism, of course, treating your neighbor, the other equally, 
uh, have very much inspired me. And as I grew older and, and became more educated about the situation in Palestine, I realized that there were some serious problems going on with Israel's occupation and in terms of justice. And so I got involved in the human rights element of uh, the Palestine issue and uh, eventually ended up uh, defending Palestinians in the Israeli courts. So how has your work changed or how maybe has your perspective changed over the past month or so? So I've been working in this field for almost three decades, and I would say what I'm seeing in the last three and a half weeks is unprecedented. Uh, the horrific scenes in Gaza, uh, the huge amount of lives lost uh, in or up to almost 9,000 with almost half children, uh, the dramatic bombardment, uh, wholesale bombardment and destruction. Uh, I, we've never seen this before. Uh, um, and then in the West Bank, uh, which is really under the radar and not at the scale of what's going on in Gaza, but certainly we're seeing um, hev the heaviest use of, of live ammunition. There increase army raids all the time. And Israeli settlers also are using extreme violence and uh, attacks that we've never seen before as well. And you know, more than a thousand people have been basically displaced from their homes by force by Israeli settlers. So again, all the indicators that we use to monitor the human rights situation have just exploded. Uh, and it's a very, it's, a horrible humanitarian situation, and it's ongoing, relentless, uh, by a very powerful army uh, against civilians. Uh, and again, the unprecedentedness of it is is just astounding. Uh, Ms. Pacheco, I, I'm I'm curious to hear your response, or, or or to have you dig into and help us better understand. You know, we hear a lot of arguments, including on this show. People will say, "Listen, Israel has a right to defend itself." Uh, Israel is responding to the, the worst act of terrorism it's ever seen, the most deadly day in that country's history. Uh, you know, it, uh, you know, Hamas has established infrastructure, military infrastructure um, underneath hospitals, has, has created essentially civilian targets. You know, it, people imply basically that Israel or the IDF has no choice but to target some of this so-called civilian infrastructure. Can you take us into your understanding of this or how you might respond to somebody that's making that argument? Yeah. So again, as a lawyer, I'll focus on the legal framework. Uh, you know, international law doesn't prohibit war, actually. It regulates it. And it divides the populations basically into two categories, combatants and civilians. So uh, there are laws for the combatants, which I won't get into. I'll get into the laws for civilians. And uh, the Fourth Geneva Convention particularly, but the law, all the Geneva Conventions very much aim to prevent civilians from becoming uh, objects of attack and trying to keep them out of the hostilities. And all of this is premised on we should have respect for the humanity of every person, no matter where they come from. So killing of civilians, whether by Hamas uh, um, on October 7th or, you know, by the Israeli army since October 7th uh, is absolutely prohibited. Uh, civilians who are not engaged in combat. Um, what we're seeing in Gaza in particular, in particular, again, one of the most densely populated areas in the world, 
there are civilians everywhere closely living together with in these buildings, high-rise buildings. The international law states when you know there is a war and an army wants to attack a target, but there are civilians around that target, there are certain principles that have to be respected, uh, precaution, distinction, proportionality, uh, and all those must be taken into account. Uh, so I'm not a court of law, but certainly from the images we're seeing, from the numbers, uh, you know, and it, when one person, one militant Hamas leader is targeted and around that leader are hundreds of civilians, again, they re and they're all killed uh, it, and the massive destruction occurs, uh, one has to very much question uh, whether proportionality, uh, uh, whether there was proportionality with, with steps taken for precaution and distinction. Uh, and it's, again, you know, even up to the secretary general, uh, uh, even uh, governments are starting to say that this doesn't, this is very much uh, disproportional uh, and calling for a ceasefire in order to stop this massive killing of civilians. Uh, UNICEF uh, has said that Gaza has become a graveyard for thousands of children. Uh, that sounds quite disproportionate to me and quite that uh, the elements of distinction have not taken place. So you as, as an American raised American schooled attorney, um, it's not just the United States that I want to ask you about, but but it's, I think, widely regarded as the most powerful and influential nation on Earth. I think that people widely regard the president of the United States as the most powerful person on Earth. What would you like to see from nations like the United States, Britain, Canada and others? Thanks for that question. Um, again, I, I, I think I would like to see an immediate ceasefire. I, I, I think Hillary Clinton, when she said, those that call for an immediate ceasefire don't understand Hamas. For me, those that call for a ceasefire are the ones that understand humanity and respect for humanity. There is this huge amount of weaponry being bombarded day after day, night after night, on an entire civilian population who are living among the targets that Israel is aiming for. But it's completely, it's it's inhumane. And I think, uh, I think that there are more, there are better ways for, to have peace here. Uh, and well, war is just a means to achieve a political objective. Uh, it's not the end, have a war and smash Hamas. The objective is to achieve peace and stability for everybody in this area. It will not come out of such destruction and suffering. Even if Hamas uh, is destroyed, the effects, the impact that this bombardment is having on this population will resonate for generations. There'll be another Hamas in 20 years. These people will take a huge, maybe not even one generation to recover from this destruction. And again, it's this destruction on top of all the other Gaza conflicts, uh, the whole history of the military occupation, the history before that of all the refugees from 1948, you know, almost uh, it's 80% of the Gazan population were receiving aid from UNRWA the, because they're refugee from the refugee population. Again, there's been this huge blockade on Gaza 
for uh, 16 years. So uh, again, the, the, I would like to see, and I would say we need to have an immediate ceasefire, calm things down, uh, hostages, prisoner release, whatever could be done to restore good faith and immediately start talking about the real political objectives of a two-state solution, dignity, self-determination, peace and security for everyone. And there are so many ideas. We've been in peace processes for decades. It's not like we're starting from zero. Uh, but to me, this is the only way to achieve peace and stability. Uh, I want to mention for the, for the benefit of our uh, viewing audience that uh, just a couple of days ago on October 31st, we spoke to uh, investigative journalist Justin Ling uh, behind the Bug Eyed and Shameless uh, substack about uh, his take on the American invasion in Iraq in 03 and how that translates to what's happening right now in Israel and Gaza and why you can't bomb your way to safety. Um, and, and based on what Allegra's talking to us right now about radicalization and how there will be another Hamas, uh, Justin digs into that as well. And if you missed that interview, I, I recommend that you check it out. Um, I have yet to speak with a single person, uh, regardless of their position on Israel, that is okay with thousands of children uh, being killed. Oh, for that matter, let me just say civilians, but but as human beings, we're hardwired to especially protect the children, I think for obvious reasons. I have yet to meet a single person that's okay with what's happening. They can write it off under the, you know, sort of, you know, this is what happens with war. Uh, but when I see some people speculating about what the death toll could look like, and when there feels as though there's inevitable reality of sort of phase two of Israeli military action or the, the military offensive, you might call it. Uh, we've seen some people suggest that there could be 600,000 casualties by the time that this is done. Where do you see this going? Do you believe that that could be prevented? Is there any reason, I hesitate to put it almost glibly, but is there reason for optimism at all? I mean, can you see a solution here? Yeah, again, I... I I think we have to stop this madness. Uh, the warmongering is so intense, of course, backed up by uh, the United States, uh, even uh, in just in the West. Uh, to me, again, it's this kind of military action will not lead to anywhere positive in my view. Uh, and that's why I think a ceasefire coupled with immediate political organizing, uh, sitting down and setting objectives is the only way, and why I remain optimistic. If we have courageous leaders, we can have the UN lead this, uh, even world leaders to say, let's just negotiate a ceasefire, step back and start a political process with defined objectives. I would be optimistic and a political process where you have a Palestinian state, Gaza, West Bank connected. It seems absurd at this moment, but this was the framework for all the peace agreements, peace negotiations for the last two decades. So if we just step back from October 7th, have a ceasefire, justice for everyone, you know, hostages released, prisoner exchange, whatever it takes to, again, good faith measures, uh, you know, uh, restoration of international law, following international law, uh, and then we st we start this political process. It's in a sense, it's almost all lined up. What needs to be done politically, uh, you know, in terms of 
objectives, uh, goals. Uh, it's just a political will and courage and leadership to move that forward. Uh, Ms. Pacheco, I'm so grateful for your time here. We, 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 you know, we've just asked our, our guest prior to you, and I want to ask you the same thing. Uh, you, you've given us much to think about, but if there's one takeaway, you know that people are having conversations about this war with their friends. People are talking about how it's resonating with them, regardless of where they live on the planet. I think uh, the eyes of the world are here watching in horror. Uh, what's the one thing? that you would like people to, to, to walk with for, for a person halfway around the world that's going, what can I do? Uh, what can I possibly do besides maybe a, a donation to UNICEF or something like that? What's one takeaway that you would put in front of us? Again, I keep repeating this message, mm. so maybe that's the takeaway, is that we need, I, I, you know, civil society all over the world are demonstrating and calling for the ceasefire. World leaders are not listening. Uh, so that's what I would say to people. Speak louder uh, and speak with your feet. Go to the demonstrations or the protests, the ones demanding a ceasefire, because it is madness here. Uh, we in the West Bank, you know, we're on the brink of a second front opening up here. It's very scary. And again, here the army is directly occupying. We have Israelis, uh, settlers who are armed and have already been raiding and um, expelling Palestinians from rural villages. The UN is reporting about, again, 1,000 people, uh, 15 communities already. We have so much tension. And then on the other fronts, this could quickly turn into a disaster. And it's an international crisis and could be an international disaster. So calling for a ceasefire, for, in my view, and as somebody under this threat, is actually protecting us, is saying to the to the world leaders, uh, um, stop this. It's not taking a political position. It's trying to protect all the civilians that ultimately want to live in peace here. And most people do on both sides. They just want quiet and want to live in this beautiful place uh -huh. uh, without weapons and and killings. There have been, um, I'm sure I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I, I don't know if Sarah Jama is on your radar. She's a Canadian politician. She's a member of provincial parliament uh, in uh, an MPP in Ontario, recently elected. Um, she was expelled from her caucus uh, in opposition um, for essentially uh, being critical of Israel uh, for calling for a ceasefire. Uh, there have been political ramifications, uh, I, I think, that have been observed around the world. For some politicians that have spoken out that way and, and and these words have even come from my mouth i think it was like within this week i said biden's not going to demand a ceasefire biden's not going to step up to netanyahu like that and you know I, I mean essentially sort of big dog israel in that situation canada the prime minister has been reticent to do it like you're saying despite the outcry and demonstrations of many people in many municipalities around the world uh, we have not seen that demand i mean the pope tweeted a few days ago calling for a ceasefire this might seem like an obvious question but i'm curious to see how you'll answer it why do you think that world leaders aren't calling for a ceasefire i honestly think they misunderstand hmm. the situation they're misreading it of the dangers i also think there's their political issues uh and they're misreading that because i believe and i hope that most of the world supports ending this bombardment and having peace come here. Uh, and any leader, uh, if we think just down the line, 
think about their political career, how would they like to be looked upon in six months from now as those supporting this killings, these killings and bombardments, or the one who led the way out of this through peace and brought people together with handshakes? Again, it sounds dramatic in this current, in today, tomorrow, but you know, we did have handshakes on the White House lawn, yeah. and everyone will remember that. So, uh, you know, I just think that political leaders need more courage uh, and uh, to step down from their ladders and demand that their allies that they support, uh, specifically Israel, uh, but also, uh, again, we have the Palestinian Authority, et cetera, uh, push, push forward uh, a, political, a political process, an immediate one, you know, that basically, again, as I said, defines the objectives of establishing a state, having own elections, uh, giving people a vision and hope. Uh, I in the end, I think most political leaders would choose to be the champions of that rather than of this war and the disaster, potential disaster that can come. Uh, Allegra Pacheco, uh, a U.S. attorney based in the Palestinian territories, joining us from Bethlehem. Thank you so much for your advocacy and thanks for your availability. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. You bet. Um, a lot to think about there. I saw one comment in our live chat. Heidi says, I'm not sure I have the same feeling as Ryan, uh, to be honest. She says, I think there are many people that are brushing the deaths of children under the rug. She says, I see very few people caring. Um, yeah, that's a gut punch. I don't know. Like, I, I guess. <laughs> what does caring look like? You know, for some people, caring means demonstrations at City Hall, demonstrations outside the, you know, the legislature in your home province, demonstrations uh, outside parliament, um, letter writing campaigns, donations. Uh, for other people, caring might simply be walking around with an unavoidable cloud uh, with sort of an ominous heaviness. Um, I don't know. But Heidi, your experience is obviously as 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 pointing as, as anybody else's and i don't know i mean johnny you and i, I think talked what a about lot this. of a lot of people when they say that i feel like caring means picking a side uh, and so if you're not on a specific side if you're not pushing you know a certain side's agenda then you automatically don't care which i don't think you know i think we're all like we 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 turn on the news every day we open our apps we look and it's more and more and more how can you not care children yeah. are dying on both sides yeah. and like she said <laughs> this is a this was one of the was probably still is one of the most beautiful places on earth yeah, one of the sure. most densely populated places on earth and i really like how she brought up the the fact of like part of this peace plan that they've been talking about for years is connecting the state of Palestine. Cause obviously if you look at a map, it's the mm. West bank and Gaza. And that doesn't mean connecting the land and putting, you know, this, this, this barrier between, you know, basically two pieces of an Israeli state. This is the master plan right here. It's basically infrastructure, you know, roads, trains, whatever it is. So that Palestinians can, you know, safely get from one side to the other. Cause right now you're either stuck in one or the other area. Yeah, so, finding that sort of, that so-called two-state solution. Exactly. I know we're not the experts at all. We're not. We're uh, learning, but we're going to keep uh, we're going to keep bringing you interviews that we think um, you know will sh will shine some like will basically deepen our understanding of this as we seek to understand. Um, and uh, and we welcome your feedback. Uh, Ms. Pacheco is uh, a guest on this show because of a real talker that advocated for us and had 
a direct line to her office, uh, and we appreciate that. Uh, and so you can be in touch with us anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Let us know what you thought about that interview. Uh, we're curious to hear, and, and of course, maybe some of the conversations that maybe you're not hearing that you'd like to hear on the show. Is there an angle that we've not explored uh, that you think is an important one? This is your show, and we're here to have real conversations. Lauren, I saw in our live chat, just wrote uh, real humanity. Um, And isn't that the truth? This conversation happens because of Real Talk partners like our friends at Kubi Renewable Energy. Uh, It's great to see Jake and Adam, two of their leaders, I believe CEO and COO, I think are their titles, uh, featured on the latest issue of Edmonton Business Magazine. Just add it to the trophy case. Uh, This team has grown uh, in less than 10 years, eight years to well over 100 employees across Western Canada. And they'd love, if you're an installer, if you're a a journeyman, if you've got your ticket, if you work in sales, if you want to be part of Canada's energy transition, the green energy movement, and you'd like to build a career around that, Kubi would love to hear from you. You can check out the careers link at kubienergy.ca. That's also where you can read more about what they're doing and check out some of the installations that they're doing on homes and warehouses and barns and, well, you name it, a fire hall recently. You can check that out on their Instagram. Kubi Energy is young, growing, and reshaping Canada's energy portfolio at kubienergy.ca. Our friends at Eden Landscaping want to remind you it's a perfect time of year to establish contact with them and start the conversation about your front yard, your backyard overhaul. You make it happen next summer by kickstarting that relationship today by visiting landscapeedmonton.ca. You just click on the contact link. It's that easy. And you can start talking to Mike and his team about your vision, your plan, and how it might be brought to life. We've worked with them as a family. I can tell you firsthand their work is unbelievable. And it was so cool to see them problem solving as well. We we ended up with a drainage issue we didn't know we were going to have. And to see them navigate that while sticking to the design of the yard and integrate a new strategy to get that water out of there whenever it rains, whenever snow is thawing. It was really neat to see. That's what comes with 20 years of experience. You'll find Eden Landscaping online at landscapeedmonton.ca. Big response to our conversation with uh, Premier Danielle Smith yesterday in studio. Mm-hmm. Um, was there like one key moment? I'm putting you on the spot. Was there one key moment <laughs> that jumped out at you? Was there something she said or didn't say? Was there uh, a topic that came up that you kind of went, oh boy, there it is? No, but I did I did wish, and we have to have her back for it, something that I feel was missing was the moratorium. I know we didn't yeah. get to that, but I feel like today... Our first guest, we were hitting on all cylinders there. I just want to say that I meant to after the interview, but we went right to Palestine. Uh, man, oh man, was the chat ever lit up? It was banging. People were like, I had no idea about this. Other people were like, we need to hear more of this. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody in there said one of the best interviews we've ever had on water security and stuff like that. I feel like we we could have had her on for, for like a full hour. You're talking about Jenny? Yeah. Oh, yeah like, sure. It could have been 
absolutely incredible. So I feel like we missed. I did want to hear that yesterday, but we had so much to get to. There's a lot to get to. And then we, she had to get out of here. And then, of course, she went and, and spoke at some other things. And yeah, they I announced just, their big insurance plan. I was on X all day reading about yeah the <laughs> premiere and everywhere she went after our yeah, show. And, she yeah. she laid out the insurance thing on the show, which I thought was interesting. Her perspective on how they're going to bring costs down, but you you could see her kind of almost like tense up when I asked if she could envision establishing a crown corporation like an Alberta insurance, insurance bureau yeah. or something. Like, like BCI that. It's, or it, uh, ICBC, ICBC or SGI in yeah. Saskatchewan. Some real talkers pointed out to me, she said, well, maybe SGI and and ICBC could be players in Alberta. And some of you pointed out to us, you said SGI has been, been operating in Alberta for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was unaware of that. I go through a broker. I've never seen any quote for insurance coverage from SGI, but that doesn't mean it's not true. Um, but yeah, I thought that was interesting. Um, we did have the scoop. We had the exclusive on, on you know, a potential... Uh, government in- initiative to basically fast track yeah. future trades people. What do you think about that? Uh, into career trades. Well, I mean, I-, I would say we tweeted about it. She basically was saying, like, you know, you kind of do away with grade 11 and 12 in a way. And you go straight into the trades. And, and you get them right into vocational schools and fast track them towards it. You see that that has like 415,000 views on Twitter right now. So people obviously <laughs> people care about it. And, uh, and and we've had a lot of comments on that. Like, you know, Kelly, for example, says this premier just hears something and it's let's go. She decides. And she has a lot of ideas. Not all of them are well thought out. She strikes me as emotional and ideological. She doesn't strike me as emotional, but maybe ideological. Um, Brian says we already have trades programs in high schools. For kids like this, they earn high school credits. They get credit for completing the first year of their apprenticeship by the end of grade 12 for many unions and employers. And they can start as a second year apprentice right out of school. Right. Um, Meg points out a graph that shows the uh, vote choice by education, uh, you know, pointing out basically that if you're a, uh, you know, a high school graduate, that's your highest level of achievement. You're more likely to vote conservative if you're a college graduate like a vocational school, more likely to vote conservative. And if you're a university graduate, you're more likely to vote NDP in Ooh. Alberta. So that's kind of an interesting source of that. Uh, Alberta Pulse is the source there. Um, Heather says, let me understand this. The same kids who are supposedly not old enough to decide their sexual orientation or gender identity are old enough to decide that they should drop out of school and decide on a trade at 15 years of age. Ooh, nice that one. from Heather. Uh, Nana Gale says Premier makes me so mad They may not have the academics to make it to university Does she think getting a trade certificate Is from a box of Cracker Jacks Uh, Great reference Nana Gale She says you have a lot of classes and tests Uh, Alberta Plummer says I know a ton of uh, Tradesmen who never finished high school I did but it didn't benefit me whatsoever Eh. He says Why do so many people who aren't in the industry Concerned Take the basics of grade 10 and then go learn applied knowledge through trade school and off you go. Mm. I like this from Jody Vance, a good friend of ours uh, from Czech TV out in BC. Jody says, as a mother of a mature grade 11 student, the social learning in high school is huge and a fast track to the trades is flawed. Uh, Jody says, teen years are fleeting enough. Also, as a practical learner, my grade 11 and 12, you know, was child was full of, or, or she says her grade 11 and 12, Jody's grade mm. 11 and 12, was full of non-academics. And after grad, she went to culinary school. I didn't know that. I definitely uh, f- agree with that a bit. Like, grade yeah. 11, 12 is, is pretty crucial to social development. That's when you kind of, I mean, I know everyone's not ready for the world, but you really learn a few parts of who you are there. You know, nine, ten, maybe, especially for some people, are kind of hard. Yeah. So I can see how pulling out early. We also talked about this yesterday. It's a little dangerous when you're 15 years old. Some of those entry level 
trades jobs are like 80, 90, 100 grand a year. Somebody offers me 100 grand when I'm 15. I'm probably going to take it. Right? Well, sure. And then, <laughs> but then what, when you're like 25 or 30? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I just, I, I think of the kids. I, I don't know that it's wise to pursue this. Now, she pointed out, she said, well, she had talked to a, a homeschooling mom in Britain. Uh, or from Britain, anyway, from the UK that had said they have their like, what is it, the O level and the E level or something like that, they have two levels. Um, and she said that the one kind of like fast tracks you to here and the other one kind of like puts you on the path to go here. And we had some people taking issue with that characterization of it. Uh, some some of you were saying, well, basically in, in the UK, one of them is to college, one of them is to university. It's not really like a road to drop out. Um, I don't know if it's fair for me to say drop out, but but, you know, to basically cut off the last two years of of up to a grade 12 education. There was something funny that some of you pointed out in our auto captions uh, when, the, when the premier said parody of esteem um, parody. Uh, the auto caption spelled it as P A R O D Y, like a parody mm. of esteem, which I thought was hilarious. Of course, she's talking about parity, P A R I T Y, like mm. equality parody of esteem. But, but the, the, uh, the AI there kind of cracked a joke without meaning to, which we thought was really funny. Shelby says, well, doesn't the RAP, the rap program already exist in schools in Alberta to allow students to get trades experience and high school credit at the same time. So kids don't have to drop out after grade 10 and Shelby's comment got a whole lot of likes, which I would imagine means that people agree with that take. You can let us know what you think. We've got a lot to work with for the flamethrower tomorrow. This Ooh. is our rebranded trash talk. The flamethrower presented by our friends at the DQs of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. That'll be every Friday. As you know, here on the show, your chance to basically rant, your chance to say what needs to be said. And uh, you can do that by way of an email to us. Talk at Ryan Also ask the premier about the Alberta pension plan. And she said, I said to her, well, you said, uh, if you can load that video up for us, Johnny, I didn't have this teed up yesterday. She, she said, I said, well, you, you basically told people you weren't going to touch their pensions on the campaign trail. And she said, well, no, I didn't. She said we were going to I said that we were going to you know, wait to receive the report and then we were going to put it in front of Albertans. And she did say that that part is true. But but there was also this. I want to talk about the rest of Canada for a moment who might see you with your Sovereignty Act, uh, the prospect, the door still being open to pulling out of the Canada Pension Plan and worry that a Smith government would be bad for national unity. Would, would those folks be wrong? Look, no one is touching anybody's pension. Pension belongs to pensioners. It belongs to Albertans, and no one is going to be touching their pension. That's another example of the misinformation that the NDP keeps spreading because they don't want to talk about their record. Okay, so there it is. She did say, nobody's going to touch your pension. But then with politicians, you know, politicians, right? You, you, what, what did she say after that? She said, nobody's touching your pensions. Pensions belong to pensioners. So you, you could probably find a way out of that as a politician to say, well, well, yeah, I mean, nobody really is. I mean, you know, nobody's losing their pension. Like people are becoming obsessed. And we've talked about this on the show before, uh, whether or not the word stealing is the appropriate word to invoke in this conversation, right? And so the government will say, nobody's stealing your pensions. The NDP, the official opposition, will say they are stealing your pensions. And the truth is, nobody's stealing anybody's pension. But there is an initiative to move and muck around with and mess with and reallocate with and reinvest your pension. There is that investment, uh, that initiative. And so while nobody may be stealing your pension or depending on the definition nobody touching your pension in other words it's still there the money's still there you still have a pension 
there definitely is an initiative. There's an undeniable initiative underway to move it. So draw your own conclusions here. At the end of the day, this kind of reminds me, people will say, and and there were some of you that were loudly speaking to our show yesterday, saying we didn't spend enough time hammering home the point that she didn't campaign on this. This wasn't part of their election platform. You know, people are wondering, where was that in the throne speech for that matter? But here we are still with consultations underway. People are filling out those web forms. If you want to hear more about the numbers that the government's claiming uh, of people that have provided their feedback, you can watch or listen to our interview from yesterday. It reminds me back when Rachel Notley, after getting elected in 2015, introduced the carbon tax and started talking about social license and started working with the federal government to try to negotiate that. I mean, that is tough ground to tread for an NDP premier to be a pro-pipeline premier. I know. But Rachel Notley was campaigning for pipelines and she was doing that. She got one. Part of what she was doing Mm -hmm. was the carbon tax and her critics her conservative critics, Jason Kenney, the loudest one, was pointing out that she didn't campaign on it. She didn't campaign on it. And at the end of the day, people had to ask themselves whether or not that fact actually mattered. Like, did Rachel Notley lie to people by not campaigning on a carbon tax and then introducing a carbon tax? Did Daniel Smith lie to people by saying nobody's going to touch your pensions and then rolling out an initiative to explore the viability of an Alberta pension plan. Ultimately, at the end of the day, it's up to you to decide how you feel about that and then how that shapes your political action, your political advocacy, your messaging, who you talk to about what, what you do when the ball's in your court. It doesn't really matter to Danielle Smith. It didn't really matter to Rachel Notley. I mean, ultimately, maybe it mattered in 2019 when they lost the next election. And I think it's oversimplifying that scenario to suggest that that's the only reason. But do you remember in 2019 that election was characterized as, by Jason Kenney, a referendum on the carbon tax? That's what that election was described as by Kenney himself. So the next election in Alberta isn't for a ways away. I mean, it's way too early to start talking about that. But... Ultimately, and we said this to Premier yesterday, I said it to her face. You know, somebody said, somebody wrote in, I wish I could remember your name, I apologize. Somebody wrote in and said she should call an election. She should put something on the line. It's not realistic to expect a Premier to call an election six months after an election, especially if they have a majority government. It would never happen. But Danielle Smith is putting something on the line. We said it to her yesterday, her political success and her political survival. If this ends up being a huge mess, if Alberta goes through with it, if it passes a referendum, if there even is one, and then it proves to be a mess, that may not happen over the next four years. But what if 20 years from now people look back? If there is an Alberta pension plan that is thriving and outperforming CPP and people are thrilled about it and it's the new Alberta advantage, then Daniel Smith will go down. In history, as a Peter Lougheed type, people are going to write emails as soon as I've put those two names in the same sentence. But you look back on what Peter Lougheed did, for example, with the oil sands, for example, with ATB and others. And, and there were some failures too, airlines and the like. But Lougheed was looked at as somebody that stood up to Ottawa, argued for Alberta's fair share and implemented things. Wasn't it Peter Lougheed that established the Alberta Heritage Savings Trust Fund? They look back and history is kind to his legacy. But there are other premiers, and not just in Alberta, 
politicians, prime ministers. You look back at their legacy, the things that have blown up in their faces, and that is what they're remembered for. And the destruction that's left impacts the people. So it's no wonder so many folks care about this. Again, we put out the call to you. Keep the emails coming in. Let us know how you're feeling about it. You will continue to shape the editorial direction of this show. Tracy says there's just spin and more spin. Alberta Girl says, remember when Daniel Smith walked across the floor and sat with Jim Prentice? She cannot ever be trusted. I mean, that feels like a lifetime ago, right? Feels like a lifetime ago. That's why she was in timeout for a while. <laughs> she was. She described it as that to me years ago. Get over there and think about what you've done. Well, because she lost the room. Yeah, I know. It, 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 it's in, in, a, in a, I guess you might call it a masterful move by Jim Prentice. Hmm. But, I mean, then the conservatives, the PCs lost the election. So I don't know how masterful it was. And I, I hate to speak ill of the deceased. May he rest in peace. But, mm. like, to convince the then opposition, the surging opposition, Wild Rose, that it made sense to cross the floor mm-hmm. in exchange for ministries and government status, um, ultimately what happened was that Daniel Smith lost the Wild Rose Party support and she lost the PC Party support. You remember that, losing the nomination in a riding to run again. And now here she is. People have short memories or she's put in her time or she's made it right. But what matters now is she's the premier of Alberta and she's starting to make good on things that she's been talking about for a long time. Well, I'm sure we're going to hear about all of this in our interview tomorrow. We should give a shout out to a brand new podcast launching. Yeah, buddy. Looking forward to it. The Discourse officially launches tomorrow. Episode one with Cheryl Oates and Erica Baroudis. Uh, You can subscribe to it on YouTube or anywhere you get your podcasts, and we'll send out a reminder of that as well. They joined me on Monday's show this week to to tee it up, to talk about what it's all about. If you're not familiar with the two of them, both of them have held senior positions in government. Cheryl was Premier Rachel Notley's director of comms uh, for the entire four years. She was Premier. Erica Baruti is the founding president of the United Conservative Party and the former principal secretary for Premier Danielle Smith. So they've been there in the halls of power, and they're going to be analyzing exactly what's happening in Alberta politics and why, and probably most importantly, what it means for you. So you can subscribe to The Discourse on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, you name it, and uh, we'll send you out a reminder of that as well in our weekly email that goes out. You can subscribe to that for free Just scroll to the bottom of our page at ryanjesperson.com. Coming up on tomorrow's Real Talk, we are opening up our studio doors and welcoming in three of the 40 Edmontonians under the age of 40 recognized in the newest episode of Edify. That's right. Three of Edmonton's top 40 under 40 are going to tell us what makes them tick, why they do what they do, and we think probably help us learn a little something along the way. We hope you'll join us. Hey, click like on this episode, will you? Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, executive producer Josh Dunford, technical producer John Hicks, general manager Katie Cook-Chivers, account coordinator Lawrence Durlego, human resources Lena Shepard, website design Mike Johnston, voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandy Morin, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. 
Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a Relay Project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com. 